Good morning. In today's headlines, the U.S. Supreme Court rules against affirmative action in higher education. Another major decision will be made today on student loan forgiveness. We have reactions to yesterday's ruling and talk to a legal scholar to dig deeper. A Florida jury yesterday found a former county deputy not guilty on all counts. That's regarding his actions during the Parkland school shooting. We have the details for you. The fatal shooting of a 17-year-old during a traffic stop in France continues to take its toll. Hundreds were arrested as violence broke out across the country for the third night in a row. Virgin Galactic has launched its first ever commercial flight to the edge of space. The flight marks a breakthrough for the company after nearly two decades of setbacks. And a cage match between top billionaire CEOs Musk and Zuckerberg were seen training and are reportedly dead serious about the matchup. We have the story. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Happy Friday. Today is June 30th. And we want to get right into it. A major decision from the Supreme Court yesterday. The High Court struck down race-based admission programs in higher education. The landmark decision ends the use of so-called affirmative action in college admissions. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the landmark ruling and the response to it. The Supreme Court ruled to end the decades-long practice of affirmative action in college admissions on Thursday. The ruling found race-based admission programs violate the U.S. Constitution's promise of equal protection under the law. President Biden says he strongly disagrees with the ruling, calling the decision a severe disappointment. I believe our colleges are stronger when they are racially diverse. Our nation is stronger because we use what we, because we are tapping into the full range of talent in this nation. Biden proposes applicants should first qualify under a college's academic standards, but then have adversity they faced taken into account. He suggested financial means, living situations, and past racial discrimination as criteria to be considered. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona also called the decision disappointing. He says it prevents colleges from promoting diversity. What we're going to focus on at the Department of Education is uh, working very closely with our higher education institutions to make sure they have clarity around what the Supreme Court decision does and does not say. Uh, we are scouring through the 200 pages today to make sure that within 45 days they have guidance, they have tools, they have resources. Former President Trump posted on Truth Social that the ruling is a great day for America and that merit-based admissions is the way it should be. Republican presidential candidate and Senator Tim Scott feels institutions like Harvard should go a step further and eliminate so-called legacy programs that consider family history at the institution as an admissions factor. Scott told Fox News it's important to ensure all admissions are based on academic scores. Being judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin, is what our Constitution wants. Edward Bloom, founder of Students for Fair Admissions and a plaintiff in the case, says discriminatory admissions practices undermine the integrity of civil rights laws. You cannot uh, cure um, uh, racial discrimination that occurred in the past with new discrimination today. Asian students in the case praised the decision. It is my hope to see a renewed college admission system that recognizes and rewards the multifaceted talents and diverse perspective that each individual can bring to the table. 
I'm ecstatic about this decision. It means that Asian Americans can finally get treated on their merits. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote in his opinion that nothing is stopping universities from considering what the student talks about in their application essay, including race, as long as it's part of a more comprehensive look at the student's quality of character or unique ability that they can contribute to an institution. President Biden is reportedly looking into taking executive actions in response to the ruling. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And joining us now is Dr. Carol Swain to give her take on this. And I will note that she has quite a remarkable story herself. Dr. Swain was born into abject poverty in rural Virginia and then earned five degrees and obtained early tenure at Princeton and full professorship at Vanderbilt, where she was a professor of political science and law. Good morning, Dr. Swain. It's so good to have you. Good and morning. first, I want to get your reaction on this situation, on the Supreme Court striking down affirmative action. Well, I applaud the decision because I believe that our civil rights laws and our Constitution were designed to protect all Americans and that the DEI CRT environment had become such that the discrimination against whites and Asians had reached an intolerable level. And I anticipated that the court would strike down race-based affirmative action. In fact, I have a book manuscript that I am completing. I couldn't complete it until after the decision, but I anticipated the fall of affirmative action. And when my book is published later this summer, it will talk about uh, how we can go beyond race. I believe that this can really set us on the path to healing race relations rather than the divisiveness of a race-based affirmative action that's no longer about equal opportunity, it's about equity now, equal results. And so that's my take on it. I applaud the decision and the courage of the justices. And you just mentioned you anticipated, you saw it coming, how? I saw it coming because it had become so absurd and they had lowered the standards to the point where there were institutions that were really engaging in segregation, separate course sections, uh, and they had watered down curricular because they were trying to have quotas, even though quotas have been banned by affirmative action for a long uh, time, they decided with their social engineering that they were going to have a certain percentage of each uh, racial group. And, uh, you know, that's wrong. And it certainly um, disfavored high achieving students. And it hurt also uh, the Blacks and Hispanics and the Native Americans, the high-achieving minorities who got swept into it, who, who, who actually were admitted on the merits, but because of affirmative action, they will always be questioned about how they ended up at elite institutions. I want to go a bit into your uh, personal story as well. What was your personal experience okay. like as a faculty member, as a student, and what factor you know, do you think race still plays in today's America? Well, first of all, I want to deal with the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is I was a high school dropout. I was one of 12 and I had a GED and I end up as a Princeton professor. And clearly uh, what benefited me in the 1970s was that when I started college at a community college where I was qualified to get in, in fact, they admitted people that didn't have a high school diploma diploma. I had a high school equivalency and I proved myself at the two-year college. 
I graduated magna cum laude from the four-year college, a, a, a liberal arts college in Roanoke, Virginia, went to Virginia Tech, you know, and all of this was, uh, I was I was late inducted in Phi Beta campus, so I was pretty smart, but I benefited from an env environment where equal opportunity and non-discrimination was what um, the law of the land was at the time, and also benefited from people who wanted to see other people succeed. And had I not been pushed by mentors, and most of them were white men, faculty, white males at these institutions, they really pushed me and they never uh, encouraged me, nor was I inclined to see myself as a victim. And so I always tried um, to excel and I excelled, um, you know, most of the time I took remedial math. And so I grew up in an affirmative action environment, but you could fail. You had an equal opportunity to succeed or fail. What I saw put in place as a faculty member was a system where if once you got your foot in the door, you couldn't fail unless you stopped going to class. And uh, the standards were lowered for faculty members. They put in easy majors. I would say that anything that ends with studies is an easy major. Uh, and so I saw the problems developing and young people that were admitted that couldn't do the work. And I think a lot of them were hostile. And that's why we've had so much unrest on college campuses. They have admitted people who really don't belong there. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Carol Swain. It's incredible where hard work brought, can bring people who brought you. So we really appreciate you here today. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. And another major decision expected today is on President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Over a quarter of $1.7 trillion in student loan debt is at stake for millions of borrowers. Entities Colin Fredrickson has the story. The Supreme Court is likely to issue a ruling on President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan on Friday. The plan would be the most expensive in the history of the United States at an estimated cost of over $400 billion. This would wipe out over a quarter of all student debt for tens of millions of Americans. The major legal challenge comes from six Republican-led states, which say the plan would hurt them financially. They own or create entities that service student loans or because they own collateralized student loans as a form of investment. And in either case, the argument is that mass cancellation, which is going to eliminate a whole swath of loans, which is going to reduce the repayment time for a, a whole other swath of loans, is going to inflict a pecuniary or financial injury on the states. Jack Fitzhenry is a legal expert at the Heritage Foundation. He believes the court will strike down the plan, but admits there's still a chance it won't. Fitzhenry says the court may find the states have a good argument. The court may also question whether President Biden has the power to cancel over $400 billion in debt single-handedly. Republicans have criticized the plan, saying it's unfair to people who won't have their loan debts forgiven and that it encourages more borrowing. Democrats support the plan. They say it helps millions of Americans in debt and may stimulate the economy. You should be able to read the court's ruling at 10 a.m. Eastern Time at SupremeCourt.gov. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. 
Three House committees are working together to investigate IRS whistleblower claims allowing an investigation into Hunter Biden. The whistleblower alleges the Justice Department interfered in a criminal tax investigation. The House committees are demanding transcribed interviews from lawyers and agents that worked on the Hunter Biden case. And today's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. Chairs of three House committees requested interviews with over a dozen employees of the DOJ, Secret Service, and IRS on Thursday. The House Judiciary Committee, the Oversight Committee, and the Ways and Means Committee are looking to interview U.S. attorneys, DOJ lawyers, and FBI and IRS agents that worked on the Hunter Biden case. The demand for the witnesses was made in a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland. The rare collaboration of committees was sparked by whistleblower testimony from IRS agent Gary Shapley released last week. Shapley investigated Hunter Biden and alleges there was political interference during the probe. Allegations include denial of search warrants and the blocking of witnesses. Shapley testified that Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss told him he didn't have full authority to charge Hunter Biden. Garland and Weiss later contended that he had complete authority. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan says somebody's lying and he doesn't think it's the whistleblower. I don't think it's Mr. Shapley who has put together a timeline, memorialized all the things that he's done in the course of this investigation. So I think Joe Biden has said things that don't square with what the whistleblower said. The attorney general has certainly said things that don't square with what the whistleblower has related to us. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says if they find out Garland was lying, impeachment proceedings will begin. Shapley and his lawyers say Hunter Biden failed to declare over $8 million in income and evaded paying federal taxes of around $2 million between 2014 and 2019. That includes foreign monies from Burisma Holdings in Ukraine. Burisma is a Ukrainian-based energy firm in which Hunter Biden served on the board of directors. The company allegedly bribed then-Vice President Joe Biden with $5 million. The House Oversight Committee on Wednesday called on Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to turn over suspicious activity reports related to Burisma. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A verdict was reached on the 2018 Parkland shooting. A Florida jury yesterday found a former Broward County deputy not guilty on all counts related to his actions during the school shooting. Here are the details. How dare prosecutors try to second guess the actions of honorable, decent police officers. A Florida jury on Thursday acquitted former Broward County deputy and school resource officer Scott Peterson of all 11 counts, including felony child neglect and culpable negligence. In the closing arguments of the trial, prosecutors argued that Peterson ignored his training. The evidence shows that the defendant had a, quote, reckless disregard for human life as required by this count because he knew the dangers that lied ahead for Meadow, Scott Beagle, and Stacey LaPelle when he fled from that building. Peterson stayed outside Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School as a gunman killed 17 people, including 14 students, in February 2018. Peterson's defense attorney said he couldn't tell where the shots were coming from. Every one of us erroneously assumed that my client knew that kids were being killed in that building and he just didn't go in. Well, these jurors made it clear through their verdict that that couldn't be further from the truth. Peterson spoke following the verdict, saying he and other officers did the best they could with the information they had, and that the shooter was the only person to blame. We've got our life We've back, our life back after four and a half years. Five and a half. Because of Mark. Yep. And being able to put the truth out of what happened. It's, it's been an emotional roller coaster for so long. 
parents of those killed in the shooting also reacted to the verdict. Deeply, deeply disappointed. Uh, I don't know what our kids or teachers are supposed to do in a school where the person that's supposed to protect them doesn't. For our families, we still feel he should be haunted every day by his failure to act. I know that he caused, he contributed, I should say, to the deaths of my daughter Gina, her schoolmates, and their teachers. The charges could have led Peterson to nearly 100 years in jail and taken away his annual pension. The shooter is currently serving a life sentence in jail without parole. And coming up for the third night in a row, violence and arson spread across France as rioters protest the death of a 17-year-old at the hands of the police. And a bipartisan delegation of U.S. lawmakers visits Taiwan unannounced. Chinese regime fighter jets and warships violate the island's nautical line during the visit. We have the details. Nearly 700 arrested as violence swept across major French cities for a third night in a row on Thursday. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the aftermath of police fatally shooting a 17-year-old during a traffic stop. A burned-out train, an inferno of car after car up in flames, vehicles that should be taking children to school or doctors and teachers to work, instead going up in smoke as unrest boils over into violence and arson. Officers of the law rush into action following an armored police truck like soldiers behind a tank as explosives go off all around them. Rioters assembled in small groups attack police with projectiles and apparent fireworks and to commandeer a large metal battle shield, advancing forward and launching explosives and other projectiles at the officers. The shield formation soon breaks, and hooded men dressed in black emerge from the smoky skirmish, armed with metal club-like weapons. One man attempts to protect his fellow rioters from the suffocating tear gas spewing out of the launched canisters. The silhouettes of the black-clad figures with a backdrop of smoke and flames is reminiscent of a theater performance, but the scene on the ground is all too real for families caught up in the mayhem. Police can be seen retaliating by firing a volley of tear gas to smoke out the rioters, then march into the burning urban riot center as unknown explosives launch towards them. The pace picks up in urgency as the officers jog past the name Nahel, spray-painted on a shuttered storefront. Nahel, whose death at the hands of police was the catalyst for the widespread unrest. Authorities say the teenager fled a traffic check in an incident caught on camera. The officer who fired the fatal shot is in custody under investigation for voluntary homicide. The teenager's death has fed complaints of systemic racism and police violence. The mother of the 17-year-old Nahel chanted along with supporters at a march in protest of the killing. She sat on top of a truck and gave away t-shirts with texts that read, Justice for Nahel. 40,000 officers were said to have deployed across France on Thursday, nearly four times the number the day before. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. French President Emmanuel Macron said today that the government is considering all options to restore order. That includes possibly declaring a state of emergency. 
And we're going over to Russia now. Two of Russia's top generals have been missing since last weekend's failed mutiny. And reports say they could be getting interrogated to find out their loyalty to the country. Russian President Vladimir Putin appeared unfazed as he greeted supporters just eight days after the Russian military faced a mercenary uprising within its own borders. Entity's Jason Perry has the latest. While Putin smiles to the crowd, the Russian military may be undergoing a massive purge. Two Russian generals have not been seen or heard from since the mutiny attempt. Former Defense Secretary William Cohen commented about what could be going through Putin's mind. That President Putin has got to have his neck on a swivel, turning around and around 360 degrees, saying, who is with me, who's against me? Again, who's a patriot, who's a traitor? And right now, he's got to be very suspicious of the people of his closest advisory team, both the government and also in the military. The two missing officers are General Sergei Sorovikin and General Valery Gerasimov. Their disappearance could have a large impact on Russia's war in Ukraine, as General Gerasimov is the commander of Russia's military operations in Ukraine, and General Sorovikin is the deputy commander. On Thursday, a reporter asked Russian presidential spokesman Dmitry Peskov if he could comment on General Sorovikin's whereabouts. Unfortunately, no. I recommend you contact the defense ministry. This is the ministry's prerogative. Some have reported that the generals and other senior officers are being interrogated about their loyalty and alleged indecisiveness in putting down the mercenary mutiny. But why was the man who led the mutiny attempt, mercenary chief Yevgeny Prigozhin, let off the hook so easily? A former Russian minister of foreign affairs gave his take on it. He uh, criticized uh, somebody inside the mafia for being for not being effective enough. But uh, everybody knew that he was not challenging a political line. Prigozhin flew into exile to Belarus on Tuesday, along with some of his fighters. The Belarus president said he invited Wagner to set up operations in his country as part of the deal that ended the mutiny. And recent satellite imagery shows a possible new military base being constructed for the Wagner Group in Belarus. NATO Secretary Jen Stoltenberg said it's not yet clear how many of the Wagner forces will end up in Belarus or other places. He said what matters for NATO is that they will continue to support Ukraine. Jason Perry, NTD News. China in focus as EU leaders came together in Brussels for the summit today. The European Union is looking at reducing dependence on China after its experience with Russia. Here's what Ireland's Prime Minister said after arriving at the EU summit. Actually, far from being an enemy, we see, it as, we see China as a partner. Um, but I think one thing that the whole situation with Russia and Ukraine has taught us uh, is that uh, we as Europeans uh, need to be careful about being dependent uh, on countries that are uh, not democratic and don't necessarily share our values. EU leaders will seek to present a united front. However, there are differences between countries such as France and Germany, which have major business interests in China, and Lithuania, which was sanctioned by China over increased ties to Taiwan. A bipartisan delegation of nine congressional lawmakers brought an unannounced visit to Taiwan this week. House Armed Service, Services Committee Chair Mike Rogers led the group of representatives. The American Institute of Taiwan says it's the first time a sitting chair of the committee has visited the country since 1979. Taiwan's president thanked the delegation for their support for Taiwan-U.S. relations. 
Congress is calling for increased funding for Taiwan defense. That could come in the form of the fiscal year 2024 National Defense Authorization Act or the annual defense budget. There's also talk of a supplementary defense package to be introduced later this summer or fall. During the visit on t Wednesday, Taiwan's defense ministry reported 11 Chinese fighter jets and four Chinese warships violated the island's 24 nautical line. The Chinese regime claims Taiwan as its own territory despite never having ruled the island. The CCP has vowed to annex Taiwan by force if necessary. A total of 24 Chinese warplanes, including fighter jets and bombers, were spotted near the island this morning. The U.S. approved arms sales worth $440 million to Taiwan yesterday. The Department of Defense says the package includes ammunition and spare parts for vehicles, weapons and related components. The agency says that supporting Taiwan's military modernization and defense capabilities helps advance U.S. foreign policy and national security goals. And now, some short headlines from around the world. A British political leader says the bank he's been with for over 40 years has closed his account with no explanation. Nigel Farage, who led a campaign for the UK to leave the EU, calls the move political persecution at the very highest level of our system. He said British companies will never forgive him for Brexit. The Netherlands said today Dutch companies that create machines that make advanced processor chips will be required to have an expert license starting in September. The new measure, notably affecting chip company ASML, comes amid U.S. pressure to restrict China's access to high-tech components, which can be used in military technology. And do you remember the guy who engraved names into a wall at the Coliseum last week? Italian police have identified a man from England as the likely culprit. UK media report he's from Bristol. The man is believed to have left Italy. He, will face, he would face a fine of over $15,000 and a jail sentence of up to five years were he convicted in Italy. And just after the break, what is queer theory and how does it influence our society? And a new Texas law allows a monument honoring victims of communist regimes to be built on state capitol grounds. We hear from the lawmaker behind the effort after the break. Welcome back. You may have seen them online. Videos of nudity and other inappropriate behavior in front of children at some pride events. And today spoke with Endgame author Derek Jensen on the role queer theory might have played in the improper activity. We have that story very soon, but first, here are some headlines from across the U.S. The worst corruption scandal in state history, that's what Ohio prosecutors are calling a giant pay-to-play bribery scheme to bail out an energy company. Former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder was sentenced to 20 years in prison for the crime yesterday. Prosecutors say he acted like a mob boss and directed the criminal enterprise from the shadows. Over $22 million made through illegal insider trading. Three Florida men were charged yesterday for crimes connected to a Trump media and technology group. The men allegedly made the trades before important information went public, namely that an acquisition firm, acquisition firm was going to take former President Donald Trump's media company public. The charges did not in any way implicate Trump or the media group. 
another crackdown by the NFL on player gambling. The league applied more sanctions yesterday. It announced three players were given indefinite suspensions for violating its gambling policy last season. The players reportedly placed bets on league games during the 2022 to 2023 season. It is the second time the NFL has issued suspensions related to gambling this offseason. Recent Pride events have exhibited some shocking extremes, including men in S&M-style dog masks and nudity in front of children. And today's Daniel Monahan spoke with author Derek Jensen on the subject of queer theory and the role it might have played. Jensen says that queer theory is an offshoot of postmodernism. It asks the question, why are some things considered normal and other things not, and attempts to answer that, especially in terms of sex. The conclusion they came to was that all normality is oppressive. Everything that's normal is oppressive, and therefore every time you violate any social norm, you are doing an act of liberation and revolution, and that should be, to use their term, valorized. Jensen says such a philosophy leads to atrocities. So in the, the founding document of queer theory, written by Gail Rubin, about 50% of it is an apologia for child sexual abuse, for pedophilia. And she has just great lines in there, like, quote, like communists and homosexuals in the 1950s, boy lovers are so stigmatized that it's difficult to find defenders for their civil liberties let alone for their erotic orientation. According to Jensen, similar statements can be found throughout queer theory, like by celebrated beat poet Allen Ginsberg, who said prepubescent boys and girls will get used to sexual relations with adults if people would only stop making a big deal about it. Jensen says that's a fundamental argument of queer theory. It's not those sex acts that are harmful, it's the prohibitions against them that are harmful. Or Judith Butler, the most famous living queer theorist who said that the prohibitions against parent-child incest should be rethought. Because these prohibitions act against the child's agency by not allowing the child to explore their sexuality with their parent. Jensen can see a connection between queer theory and some of the most extreme sights seen at recent Pride events, such as men dressed in pup masks whipping each other, or the nudity in front of children. And that's Part of the fetish of all this is to get other people to force other people to participate in your fetish. That public violation has always been crucial to, to queer theory. Jensen is careful to point out that queer theory is not the same as homosexuality or lesbianism. Honestly, most of the gays and lesbians I know personally hate pride. They know that there's a backlash coming against all of this um, but, you know, especially the Q and the T. Derek Jensen is the author of Endgame, The Culture of Make-Believe, A Language Older Than Words, and many other books. He was named one of Utney Reader's 50 Visionaries Who Are Changing Your World and won the Eric Hoffer Award in 2008. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A new Texas law allows a monument honoring victims of communist regimes to be built right on the Texas state capitol grounds. Entity asked the lawmaker behind this effort why this memorial monument is important. Let's take a look. Texas Governor Greg Abbott recently signed a bill approving the construction of a monument honoring victims of communism at the state capitol complex in Austin. 
State Representative Tom Oliverson authored the bill. He hopes the monument will remind Texans about the true legacy of communism. It's also important that we have a place and a monument that endures across the generations where we can say this is an ideology that, that, that claims to bring hope and instead what it delivers is suffering and misery. In the bill, Oliverson condemns historical communist leaders such as Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, Fidel Castro, and Pol Pot. So we're aware that communist regimes have killed more innocent human beings than any event in human history. He says many young people today are captivated by the ideology. I think it's incredibly important. Did you know that in uh, Austin uh, they have marches every year uh, for communism? And they bring out pictures of Stalin and Mao and Lenin and they march and, and they act like these guys are heroes, even though they're butchers and mass murderers. What professors say in schools and colleges and stuff like that about the ideals of equity and everybody's treated fairly, that is not what you see in practice. He's currently pushing legislation that requires public schools to teach students what communist regimes have done in history. Oliverson and other lawmakers in 2021 led another bill that recognized November 7th as Victims of Communism Day in Texas. This is part of why I say I think it's important for all Americans to visit with people who've actually survived Castro's Cuba, who've actually escaped China, who've actually experienced Eastern Europe under the brutal regimes, you know, of Kuchescu. The lawmaker is calling on voluntary donors and artists to help build the monument. It would be the second of its kind in the U.S. after the Victims of Communism Memorial in Washington, D.C. The public can visit TomOliverson.com for more information on the project. Reporting by Chi Huynh, NTD News, Texas. And coming up is a cage match brewing between top billionaire CEOs. They have been seen training in martial arts. We'll bring you that story when we come back. The stories that need to be told, the voices that need to be heard, the truth you need to see. Get unbiased and in-depth news. Don't miss a beat. I'm Stephanie Cox at NTD. We're here for you. Good to have you back. Overstock.com is changing its name. The online retailer will soon become Bed Bath & Beyond, which declared bankruptcy earlier this year. Overstock purchased the brand's name and intellectual property for $21.5 million. The purchase does not include brick-and-mortar stores, which are closing. Shares of Overstock soared nearly 20% yesterday after the news. CEO Jonathan Johnson says the company has long looked for ways to rebrand the name Overstock it still confuses some customers and suppliers who think the company is a liquidator. It started out in 1999 as a clearance outlet. It now sells a variety of items, including furniture and home decor. The name will switch. Well, the name will switch. The name switch will roll out in Canada in July. The company's U.S. website and mobile app will relaunch as Bed Bath and Beyond in August. Virgin has launched its first flight of paying customers to the edge of space. Yesterday's inaugural commercial flight took passengers more than 50 miles above Earth. The flight marked a long-delayed breakthrough for Virgin Galactic. Its commercial service was hampered by development setbacks for nearly two decades. Entity's Cost Temenas tells us more. 
Passengers on the flight included two Italian Air Force personnel and one Italian national researcher. They were joined by a Virgin Galactic astronaut instructor and two other Virgin crew members. Setting off from New Mexico, the aircraft took the crew to an altitude of more than 40,000 feet before detaching and rocketing off to the edge of space. Colonel Walter Villadei, mission commander for the Italian Air Force, says the trip exceeded his expectations. It was a beautiful uh, ride. It was uh, actually it was a very beautiful since the very beginning. Even uh, climbing up with the uh, Eve uh, next to us. I mean, we were attached to the Eve, but but seeing this other uh, plane flying with us was a very very interesting, amazing. On board, the crew's medical researcher conducted scientific experiments. I think that now is time to study, to review all the results of the experiments and analyze uh, how we have worked uh, during the flight. The flight then entered a free fall and the crew experienced several minutes of weightlessness. It was unbelievable, the acceleration, the climb and suddenly the, the microgravity and uh, I was concentrated with my uh, test uh, with uh, uh, my knee board but uh, I had the opportunity to look outside and the view it was amazing fantastic about 75 minutes after its ascent from earth the unity space plane safely glided back to its starting point on a runway at spaceport america in new mexico cost mns NTD News. So, Evelyn, do you remember the proposed matchup between billionaire Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg? Yeah, well, whatever happened to that? Well, both billionaires have been seen training with top talent in mixed martial arts. And UFC's Dana White is already showing off Zuckerberg versus Musk t-shirt. Really? Yeah, yeah. And NTD's Jason Blair brings us the story. Starting with a seemingly half-serious tweet by Elon Musk, a MMA cage fight between Musk and Meta's Mark Zuckerberg seems to be getting closer to becoming a reality. Both Musk and Zuckerberg have been seen training with podcaster and jiu-jitsu black belt Lex Friedman. Friedman said on YouTube on Sunday, quote, It's inspiring to see both Mark and Elon taking on the martial arts journey. I look forward to training with both of them in the months and years to come. Zuckerberg posted a video on Instagram training with jiu-jitsu fighter Mikey Musumeci, saying, quote, great learning from jiu-jitsu legend Mikey Musumeci and starting to prepare for our MMA debuts. Zuckerberg has been training jiu-jitsu for over a year and won gold and silver medals in a tournament held in May in Woodside, California. Accomplished MMA fighter George St. Pierre offered to train Musk in a tweet in which Musk replied, okay, let's do it. Musk's mother, May Musk, is against the fight and advised Elon in a tweet to, quote, fight with words only. She also responded to recent photos of Musk training with Friedman, saying, quote, sorry, I can't like this. UFC President Dana White told TMZ on June 22nd that he has spoken with both Zuckerberg and Musk and that they are both, quote, absolutely dead serious. White went on to say that the fight would be the biggest in the history of the world. White was also seen on Twitter sporting a Zuckerberg versus Musk t-shirt. If a fight does happen, there's been talk about it being held in Las Vegas, but so far, an official announcement has not been made. Jason Blair, NTD News, California. And have you ever heard of Mommy Brain? 
Well, it might sound like a fictional condition, but 50 to 80% of postpartum pa uh, patients experience this. I spoke to an expert. Sounds important, and we have more coverage coming up. When raising children, many parents focus heavily on their child's academic performance, but an accomplished entrepreneur says more needs to be done, so stay tuned for that. Good to have you back. Mommy brain is a real thing and sometimes it might be frustrating, but this year experts say that it is time to focus to, on what you can do instead of what you can't do. I spoke to an expert who says it's much more than just brain fog. Joining us now for more is psychologist, Dr. Jean Cirillo. It's good, good morning, Jean. What, and uh, to start with, I really wanna know from you, what exactly is mommy brain? Well, mommy brain is what a lot of people refer to as the brain fog that comes with pregnancy, especially the later stages, as well as a few months after giving birth. And it's been misconstrued as brain fog. What it really is, is certain skills that weren't that important before, like differentiating between different cries, reading looks on somebody's face like a baby when they can't talk to you. Those skills have begun to take over the real estate in the brain. You mm -hmm. haven't lost the other skills, it's just they've been screened out temporarily by the more important skills. Right, and now how long would this last, the change in the brain? Well, that, that kind of change in the brain could last for, say, two to four months until after you've gotten used to the baby and then the other skills start coming back. You know, any new skill takes all your attention and it takes attention away from others. But it can be worrying if you feel like you're not on top of your game when you try and go back to work. Now, what can help with that? Do you have any tips for that? Well, what helps is a lot of times to realize you're not the only one to join a group of new mothers to read up on what's likely to happen and to find a therapist who's sympathetic to postpartum symptoms, postpartum lag, the brain fog. You know, a woman described it when she went into a doctor and it was a day late and the, the receptionist said, that's okay, I know you're pregnant. And people take that as a negative, but it does happen. You put aside certain things like adult appointments for raising the baby. Now, one last thing before we go, is there anything moms can do to maybe get over the mommy brain faster? Is this even something they should want or do? Because it obviously has a biological purpose. Well, yeah, exactly. What they have to do is first accept it and then realize how they can structure their time differently. You know, they, they used to say, when you're at work, forget that you're a mother. When you're at home, forget that you work. So what they can do is learn to compartmentalize a little bit better. And that happens naturally as you know the child's needs. It becomes second nature, and then you're able to focus on other things. So you really can't push it. But, you know, you can read to the child. You don't have to give up all your skills. You don't have to talk baby talk. The baby likes to hear you talk mommy talk and adult talk also. That's how they learn to speak. Hmm. Thank you so much for those tips, uh, Dr. Jean Cirilla. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
Well, Evelyn, I got to say thank you for bringing this issue to light and for giving those pregnant mothers some tips. Oh, yeah, of course. It's a very prevalent topic, but it seems like, you know, nature's got you, right? It's, nature has, has a solution for things. Mother's instincts kicked in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And after you give birth to that kid, how to raise kids to be independent and productive adults becomes a question for many parents as well. A successful entrepreneur wants to help with that and is sharing a few tips. Let's take a look. Vera Stewart is the host of a popular Southern cooking show, The Very Vera Show. On top of that, she has been an accomplished entrepreneur for decades. She credits her success to her training in etiquette and manners early in life, despite losing her father when she was seven years old. I am so proud that I was taught those things, and I never had to have that feeling of insecurity or not being good enough. With a home economics education degree, Stewart established a successful catering and mail-ordering business out of her kitchen in 1984. Twenty years ago, Stewart started a summer camp to teach kids everything that made her successful, cooking, home management, etiquette, manners, and more. A six-year-old has to stand up and say their name and where they you know, where they go to school, what grade they're in, they're in, and who their guest is today for the banquet. When kids in the camp got too nervous to speak in public, she and other counselors would guide them to overcome their fear. Our goal is to make sure they do it and that they do it well. And so the understanding of which children need to be coached a little bit more in order for them to get that moment for them to have that shining moment that they accomplished something that they were scared to do. Stuart says training good manners requires repetition. One child was late this morning and I pulled him aside and I said, no, ma'am, no, you, you have to be here on time. You can't teach something one time and expect somebody to remember it. You, you, you've got to reinforce it no matter what it is. She says kids need to learn to suffer setbacks and develop work ethics. In our house that, that you, you had consequences related to things that you, you know, maybe did not do correctly or you were not supposed to do. And then, you know, the understanding that anything worth having is hard. Then you've got to put the work in. You've, you've got to make some sacrifices for that to work. Stewart also tells kids that putting on a smile no matter what is a good way to show a positive attitude. Angela Moy, NTD News. That, that really reminds me of my etiquette class I took in college. They taught us everything, like, you know, you have your forks on the left, your spoons on the right, and oh. you use them from the outside in. See, that always confuses me, <laughs> but good to know. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I actually read recently that, you know, Gen Z nowadays, they have lack some soft skills because of all the remote learning and stuff that has been happening. So I think that could be really helpful as well. Wow, interesting. Yeah. That's a great cause. All right, that's all for today's, actually, this week's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com as usual. Shoot us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching. Have a great weekend. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.